I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Hello everyone, my name is Michelle de Kretzer and I'm delighted to welcome you to your favourite's favourite, a conversation with Andrew Pippos. And Andrew and I were saying backstage that, um, you know, first session of the first day, you're the true heroes of literature, so thank you for being here. Um, Andrew and I would like to begin by acknowledging that we're meeting on land traditionally owned by the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's their country, they've never ceded sovereignty. And Andrew and I want to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge that the first stories in this country were told by Indigenous people. Uh, I'd also like to thank and acknowledge the uh, Cultural Fund of the Copyright Agency. They're wonderful supporters of our writers and our literature, and they're the sponsors of this event. So it's my joy today to be talking with Andrew Pippos. Andrew has worked as a journalist. He's published essays and stories. He teaches creative writing at UTS, and the focus of our conversation will be his first novel, Luckies. So Luckies is the story of Lucky Malios, a Greek-American migrant to Sydney, who sets up a chain of American-style cafe diners in Australia. The novel follows him from the 1940s through to the 21st century, which is a long span, and one of the things I really admired about this book is the largeness of its vision, its grand design. I also love the sheer pleasure Andrew takes in storytelling. Stories and histories proliferate and entwine in these pages, and they bring a wealth of characters and ideas with them. Luggies is bold, generous, sometimes devastating, sometimes very funny. It's quite an achievement. And we're going to begin with Andrew doing a brief reading from the novel. I'll read from the first chapter. He still had time to make changes, not to his nickname, which he could never shake, and not to his appearance, and there was little prospect of changing the flaws in his character, since the time had passed for great internal transformations. But Vasilis, Lucky, Malios, supposed he could fix his own story, to be specific, how it ended. Lucky sat tucked at his kitchen table, newspapers spread across the surface, stripping rigany from the stalks. The herbs had hung inside a cupboard for a week, not long enough to properly dry. But he couldn't wait. This old ritual was necessary. It offered a moment's accord with the past. He placed the stalks to one side and picked through the heap of flower heads, plucking out grey twigs as the smell drifted up like the spirit of someone dead. The apartment now otherworldly, dense with human life. He told himself, we all have missing people. Our dead parents, or the spouse who left too soon, or the lover who betrayed us, 
the sibling who deserted the family, the friend we never found, the friend who walked away, the child we didn't have, the person we couldn't become, the life we should have led. Or the missing person might yet arrive, the child we still could have, the family we were about to find, the lover or destroyer coming to the door. Lucky could briefly accept that his world was incomplete, and he waited for this moment to end before he switched on his television. Thank you, Andrew. So I'm just going to begin at the beginning, really, and ask what made you want to write about Lucky's The Diner? Well, the Greek cafe milieu is one that fascinated me all my life. It was a, the world that I knew as a child, and it was always going to be the setting of my first novel. I mean, there are other settings, but really the milieu of the Greek cafe is the, um, is the central setting. You know, it's a lost world. The heyday of the, of the Greek cafe between the 30s and the late 60s, early 70s, and... Um, you know, these were cafes that were sort of cousins once removed of the British Oyster Saloon or the American Diner, and they were run predominantly by Greek migrants. They were Art Deco in design, checkered floors, jukeboxes, soda fountains. They were part of the early Americanization of Australian culture, in a sense. They were social hubs for country towns, for suburbs, they sold a sense of community to Australians. It's, it's very interesting to me. Perhaps one of the strangest facts about the Greek cafe was that these were, it was run by, they were run by outsiders. They were run by migrants in a time when Australia wasn't a multicultural country. Yeah. And these migrants sold community to Australians. They also sold an idea of sophistication, I think, because I remember, you know, being um, a teenager in Melbourne and um, sort of equivalent, which I always thought were, perhaps it's a Melbourne thing, Italians more than Greeks, but maybe they were Greek. But they, you know, they had burgers and milkshakes, which were so like, wow, you know, pre-McDonald's. And cappuccino, you know, it was so exciting. So I think... Also, and that comes through in your novel, it was this idea of modernity. Yes. Early restaurant culture is, you know, dominated by these Greek cafes, Italian yeah, yeah. cafes as well. Yeah. And what I loved, too, um, was that, you know, you, well, you know, there is, we have Lucky at right at the start, he's, you know, stripping the oregano from its stalks. And in the course of the novel, we see him cooking traditional Greek meals for his family when the cafe closes. But what's served in the cafe is largely, you know, sort of burgers and steaks and things like that. So I loved that because a lot of um, migrant or novels about my, migrants in Australia really focus on the food of the homeland, but you give us this wonderful hybrid mix. And at one point you say purity is an ethnic fantasy, and I was wondering if you could talk about that idea a little bit. <laughs> um, well, to go back a step, even though the Café Greek sold community, they were often cut off from the Greek communities of Sydney and Melbourne. 
they were in country towns where yeah. they were the only Greeks. Or they were working seven days a week from seven o'clock in the morning to nine or ten o'clock at night. Yeah. There just wasn't the space to be part of, a, of their own community. So they were anglicised in a way. They were, they, were, they were hybrid people. And these cafes were hybrid places, you know. There was the British food on the menu, American food on the menu, this Californian Art Deco design. In the kitchen, Greek was spoken. Part of the stove was cooking these dishes from the menu. Another part of the stove was reserved for, for Greek food that the family would eat. Yeah. And another great line in the book is when you say, migration produces a new kind of person. And we see that in the novel, don't we? Because, you know, there's quite a difference between the first generation, Achilles, um, Lucky's father-in-law, and his children, for instance. They are different people. Well, Achilles is, he is like his namesake in many ways. He is the... You, don't, you can't call a character Achilles <laughs> in a novel without taking yeah. on certain yeah. symbols. And he does represent some men of my papa's generation who were, when they were, when they were children in Greece, you know, the culture of dueling and vendetta killings was, had only recently died out. Yeah. But it was still a culture in places like Ithaca. It was still a culture of machismo. Yeah. And in order to be... A man, you needed to use force. That was that was what they did, and you know I've tried to portray that in Achilles. Tried to show the ugliness and the futility of that that kind of masculinity. And of course, Lucky is a different kind of person. Yeah, they these migrants change the country, but they are also changed they by are, they by are transformed. It. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, I wonder, you know, you mentioned that Lucky's is now, you know, it's, a lo it's part of a lost world. And, you know, it reminded me of something that Philip Larkin said, that the, the wish to preserve is at the heart of all art. Mm. And I wondered whether that was important to you. This, did you write with a sense of, you know, recuperating this lost past? That was part of the urge. Yes. It was, and yet... The story of the family and the people in Lucky's. I'm not trying to make generalizations about the Cafe Greeks and represent all, all, the whole experience. It's a story about particular people and their, their particular cafes and how that resonates is really up to the reader. But the fact that the trajectory of the, of the Greek cafe was complete, that the story was over, was, um, it did draw me to the, yeah. to the story. And it did inform, influence the fact that this is a story that covers a lot of narrative time. Yes. Really, yes. almost the lifespan of the of the Greek cafe. You know. I was also wondering. You know, I mean, it seems to me to be a project of ongoing importance to write non-Anglo Australia into literature. <laughs> um, you know, alongside Anglo-Australia, that, you know, we need many representations of, you know, other cultures as well. Just so that, you know, especially for, for readers within Australia and outside Australia, you know, there is a kind of sense that this is a, a large, diverse community. And was that something that was important to you as well when you were writing this, you know, there's a sense that you are, 
you know, you're writing about your community. Was that? I mean, apart from the luck, the diners aspect, was mm. that something? I think that I was raised with. You know, I was raised to have elder respect. Both sides of my family, elders were really at the centre of the, the extended family units, and. It wasn't an automatic respect. There was, you know, some critical distance, but we learned from the, those who came before us, and and if there were disagreements, they were always respectful. Um, we can talk of a Greek Australian literary tradition. Yes, absolutely. Christos Jokas, Antigone Kefala, Peter Polides, Anthony Macris. Yeah. Um, I would add Beverly Farmer to that list. Yes. You know, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And. We could keep going with that list, while I don't necessarily write like them. I have enormous respect for their achievements, and I've read their books, and that's been part of my education, in a big part of my education in Australian literature. And the fact that we can even I, look—I don't know where I fit into that, into that, to that group. The fact that we can talk about a Greek Australian literary tradition is. A sign that Australian literature is developing. Yes, indeed. I think. I mean, it's quite obvious to anyone reading Lucky's. I think that classical Greek literature has been part of your formative reading.、Mm. Um, would you like to talk about that? About the the. I mean, from you know the name Achilles and Penelope and、um, well, you know your your Greek ancestors come from Ithaca.、Yes. Um, Can't get more sort of classical than that.、Yes. Um, the reading of Greek myths was that important to you when you were? It was enormously important to me as a child, and, and classical literature still is. Yeah. You can't put Ithaca into a novel without, you know,、yeah. like Achilles. <laughs> It's not something that you can just toss in without expecting there's going to be、yeah. some、um, a particular kind of resonance. For the Pippos family, of course, we come from Ithaca, and. It's it's a real place with you know、yeah. relatives that we visit and gossip and、yeah. so on and so forth. But、um, of course, it does function as a kind of distant homeland, a place that Achilles will never go back to, and and you know that sort of yearning for home was a very Interesting thing in my own family. I mean, my grandfather, for example, came from Ithaca. His first job was at a cafe on Elizabeth Street near Central Station, and then he lost that job because there was a falling out with the, the owner over some broken dishes, and the owner wanted to dock my grandfather much pay, and Papu wasn't having that, so he left the business and he ended up working in a sugarcane farm in Queensland.、Um, Cutting cane, you know, he kept his machete from that job for the rest of his life, and I've now inherited it. Although it's at my mother's, <laughs> it's at my mother's house because there is no cane to cut in the inner west of Sydney. But with、um, that that money from that toil, he started a cafe, and the cafe days began. But he always wanted to return to Greece. There was an idea. That there would be some victorious homecoming, but by the time he had the money to do something like that, he was an old man. It was he had already had a family. There were cafes, 
he had businesses and he had a, a place in, 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 in the Australian community. But um, the home that he bought in Greece was not a home. It was a building in Piraeus. It was a sex hotel in Piraeus. <laughs> and it, that's, it. that wasn't a place that you could take, a, you could take my grandmother or, or a family. So he died in Australia. And um, that sex hotel is now a backpacker's hotel. <laughs> and it's called the Hotel Achilleon, which is where I got the name okay. for the Cafe Achilleon in the book. That's a great story. Um, I was thinking also that, I mean, I was thinking of the sort of narrative influence of mythology on this book. So, I mean, for instance, when, a, you know, you have a sort of brilliant, ruthless economy when you dispatch your characters, you know, a couple of sentences and they're gone, like... <laughs> Um, and I thought that was very reminiscent to me of the way that, you know, in Greek myth, often, you know, the, the, the character goes, um, you know, whoever's fallen foul of the gods. Um, <laughs> you being the god in this case. Um, and also just the sheer pleasure and proliferation of stories, I thought, you know, the way that that goes, you know, the way that one story links to another in, yeah. in mythology. Well, the Iliad, I mean, uh, of course I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, and um, that kind of, that rhythm in the Iliad of characters, you know, being thrown down to Hades is yeah, yeah. <laughs> something that it's like, okay, these are good techniques, and there are great narrative techniques in, in the Iliad, okay. um, from the way the characters are dispatched to the nested flashbacks, and yeah, yeah. so on and so forth. They are... That's, I think that's the reason we still read those poems, because so much of our, so many of our narrative strategies as novelists come from epic poetry. Well, let's talk about um, structure, and um, because it is a very striking feature of this book, um, is, is the structure of the book. And, you know, when I was reading it, the phrase pleated time kept coming to me because of the way it sort of folds so skillfully back and forward. And I wondered whether, I mean, is that structure something you had from the beginning? And at, you, why did you choose this, that, that structure, rather than just telling a straight chronological story? Well, I think, I try not to have too many rules as a, as a writer, but I do think if you can tell a story chronologically, do it that way, because readers love it. Um, but if I told Lucky's chronologically, then I would have emphasised the wrong characters, the wrong themes. It would have been very Achilles-heavy. And he's a force of nature. He's not as important as Lucky or Emily. And certainly Emily would be relegated um, to, a, to a different position in the novel if it had been told chronologically. So I needed to mix it up. Um, and the first graph was chronological, so I did give it a really good shot, everyone, <laughs> but it really didn't work. And so, hang on, let me interrupt you there. So when you say it really didn't work, did you, did you decide that for yourself or did, you know, an editor or a friend or something read it and say, Andrew... I decided it for myself. I wasn't game enough to, to, to have anyone read it. But was that a dismaying moment? I mean, you've written a whole novel and then you think, oh, God, it's not working. I mean, just asking for a friend, but how did you pick yourself up <laughs> from that and keep going? No, the first draft was fine. I thought I could see what was wrong with it, and that was good because I knew 
I knew the direction. It was when I read the fifth draft, and it wasn't working. <laughs> that was a real problem. I had to sort of take a few months away from it. So, is that something you would advise? I mean, is that, some, is that advice you give to your students to sort of take time off between drafts so that you can? Yes, um, and that three-month period was a period where I realized there was a character missing from the book, and oh. um, <laughs> that character was Emily. Right, so Emily's story, that was my next question, was did you have all the stories at the beginning, but obviously not. So Emily's this journalist who's in Australia, um, she, she's British, um, to interview, um, to, to, to write about Lucky's, the, the restaurants, which no longer exist. Mm. Um, well, she's part of the story in a very organic way. I mean, she never really, well, I won't spoil the no, ending. No, spoilers, but, um, not. the uh, Yeah, she's an important part of the story. So much of the story is about the past tumbling into the present. It's about legacy. Yes. And I wanted Ian's storyline to have that as well. So quite later on in the day, you, in, you realized you needed to do that. So you were writing new stories and interleaving them mm. through even, yeah. yeah. I mean, the way that I thought of it, probably around draft five, was that there were different lanes of narrative. Yeah. That there wasn't a first narrative frame with flashbacks. This is getting too technical. No, um, that's right. And, you know, I had many, many different diagrams of the novel. Literally diagrams? Is Literally that how you diagrams, yeah. you know, like, like this with little circles and yeah. storylines. And each new narrative strand had a different colour. And there were post-it notes everywhere. And <laughs> the, it's, the, it, there was no other way for me to, to keep track of. Like such, so much, such a time frame. It really was. You can get lost in it. And the danger of writing a story that covers so much narrative time is that the reader can get lost in it. And that's not something that I wanted, that I wanted to happen. I quite like a novel I get lost in. <laughs> it's sort of immersed in, and that is what you provide, that sort of immersive reading experience. Immersion is good, but not knowing what year it is, what day it is, or oh. that sort of confusion, <laughs> that sort of time confusion is, not, confusion is, 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 not, good. is not good. Yeah, that's, it, it came together like that, and then towards the end, there was a, it, this is the kind of novel where you can change the sequence of chapters, and I was you know, changing the sequence of chapters, you know, right up until the, almost the proof pages. That's stage. good. Novelists exist to complicate the lives of publishers. Yes. It's our sole function. And then the proofs were just... There was something like 900 changes made to the proofs. And then one day, my, my publisher and my editor came to my apartment and... <laughs> With a machete. No. No, they didn't. They're not machete-type people. One held me down and the other one took my, took my computer away and, and then... <laughs> the book was in stores soon after that. <laughs> Wonderful um, writing in this novel, um, just, you know, including at sort of sentence level, where you talk about, you know, an apartment that looks like a tower with its pockets turned outside, up, yeah. inside out. Or, you know, someone sighs out of a cardigan, great choice of verb there, or 
There's a cozy-shaped silence.、Um, how much revision do you do at the sentence level? Do you do a lot of rewriting? At I hope you do. I hope it doesn't come naturally to you. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to kill you. <laughs> oh, thank you,、uh, Michelle.、Uh, no, look, my、um, my sentences in the first draft are like the cat sat on the yeah, mat. Yes, you. That's good. Lucky、yeah. walked out the door, yeah. Yeah. and then I'm sort of confronted with the subject for monstrosity, and you know I go and I pick up. Nabokov or Cynthia Ozick or someone like that, and see what language can really do, and then I, I go back to the page. And... So reading is a really important part of writing a beautiful sentence. Yeah. For me, because it doesn't come naturally. Yeah. Good. <laughs>、um, and you reference. I mean, thinking of reading and sort of books, which. Uh, I'm thinking must have been, you know, important for you in the writing of this one. You reference,、um, you know, Middlemarch. You reference the Charterhouse at Parma.、Um, was the 19th century realist novel one that was kind of, you know, that, did you have the sense that you know you're in the 21st century? You are looking back to older models with this, this, you know, this big grand. Narrative structure and so on, the wealth of characters.、Yeah. I think well, it's really hard to talk about your place in literary history、um, without seeming、uh, analytic or grandiose. I think that a lot of writers now are, are influenced. I can see the influence of the great 19th-century novels and also the techniques of the post. The postmodern writers, and that I mean, look at Zadie Smith, even Jonathan Franzen. Sure. But certainly, you know, sort of, if you get to the nitty gritty, the Charterhouse of Parma, certainly the first eighty pages of that book is this magnificent adventure story. Well, this was something that I wanted to do with the Benny Goodman chapters. Some of the devices in、yeah. Great Expectations are just. I'm, I've just lifted them and put them straight into into Lucky's. <laughs> good, good, so, good.、Um, I do love the 19th century.、Yeah. I do love the 19th century novels,、yeah. particularly Dickens and Eliot, Hardy, Stendhal, Flaubert. Although he he's quite depressing. Yes,、uh, but you know there is the wonderful, the the sort of the problematic gift at the heart of this novel, isn't there?、Yes. Which is great expectations. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love the idea of a gift not being a pure gift. That there's there's some sort of sting in the tail. As the Trojan said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs>、um, so, still on the topic of reading. I mean, are there are there、um, Australian books or writers that are important to you? I mean, Patrick White. You, you,、um... Oh, there are many. I mean, the, the Tree of Man was a very interesting book because of it's, it's that whole of life story. And、yeah. It's something that I wanted to 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 bring into Lucky's.、Um, reading Helen Garner as a young man was was a great experience, and、yeah. I can remember reading 
some of her novels and writing her a letter when I was about 19 and getting, <laughs> and getting a, a letter in response was you know, yeah. the most amazing thing that had ever happened to me. Um, and, you know, Christos' books are, were, were very important to me. But I suppose looking back to that very formative time, what was big was that sort of that, re that Australia sort of urban realist yeah, writing, yeah. loaded, and Andrew McGann's novels, uh, everyone read Monkey Grip. So they were important to me, even though I don't write like them. So, um, Ithaca, where your Greek ancestors come from, and of course, I think at once of Kavafi's great yes. poem. When you um, set out for Ithaca, yes. Hope your road is a long one, full of adventure, full of discoveries. Yes. This, what were the, what were the adventures? What were the discoveries you made writing this novel? Were there any? Were there craft or? or? There were so many. Yeah, good. I mean, tell us. So much happened to me during the writing of this book. You know, my father died, and we we read Ithaca at at, at his funeral. Um, you know, I left a newspaper job, I started at universities, I wrote a, a doctorate, I had a child, you know, I discovered that I had a half-brother. Um, the, the personal journey was extraordinary. Yeah. And then in terms of writing, it's hard to talk about all the different technical things I learned, but, you know, when I was a teenager, I told myself that one day I would write a book, publish a book. Yeah. And, you know, now I've grown up and I, and I, and I did it. You know? Yes. So, in one sentence, that was the artistic journey. You say someone, is it Emily in the book, says that, who's a, who's a journalist, um, she has to keep literature, she has to treat it like a vice that yes. she keeps hidden from her colleagues. Yes. Did you have to keep literature, you know, this desire to write a novel, did you have to keep that hidden or, or were you more open about it? No, I wasn't. I wasn't very open about it. I didn't, I didn't tell people... I didn't talk about it with extended family very, very much. There were a few friends that I talked to about writing, but everyone else, if they knew that I was writing something, that was, that was okay, but I didn't want to engage in it. Because I felt, what if this goes wrong? You know, there was always that fear that it would never be published and it would be, yeah, yeah. It would be a, a failure. And, I mean, so much of this book, of course, that feeds thematically into the book, because so much of the book is about how people respond to failure. Yeah. And so, yeah, your, your fears, your obsessions give you your themes. Yeah. But no, I didn't, as a sub-editor at newspapers, <laughs> I didn't tell everyone I was writing a novel, no. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions for Andrew? Um, I'm just very interested in the title of the book, and if you could tell us how you came up with it. The original title of the book was The Imposters. Um, but it's not really entirely a book about fakes and frauds. Um, this is a story about, you know, a man's whole life, more or less, and the lives that intersect with his 
Um, but they all intersect at the site of the Lucky's cafes, so I just wanted to plant that flag and call the book Lucky's. It's very, very much a functional title rather than a, than a poetic <laughs> title. Anyone else? Um, another Greek-Australian here. Um, my godfather owned a cafe up in Katoomba when I was a kid and I have very many happy memories. And it seems to me that there were little enclaves of these cafes. I've not read your book yet, but your thoughts on how the cafes varied from urban to rural settings and influence on the culture and all of that, if you have any, I'd be very pleased for you to share them. Thank you. How they varied is a complex thing to address. How they were similar is much easier <laughs> because they all looked the same. They, the menus were almost identical. Um, some of the mottos on the walls of these cafes were the same. I mean, the motto on the Pippos Family Cafe was cleanliness, and our motto, cleanliness and civility. That was, there were dozens of other cafes with those, with exactly the same motto. And so it was irresistible, to the idea of a franchise. There, there was never a franchise, but the idea of a franchise was irresistible and it was am very amusing to me. How they differed. I mean, the families were different. The, the, the way they were set up was different. The, the, how they got the money to set up these cafes. The origin stories were all very different. And the origin story of in Lucky's is, is particularly unusual. It's another lady, yeah. Yes, hi. Hi. Um, I'm reading the book at the moment and I just wondered about uh, Emily and her father. So Emily seems to me quite a strong, maybe that's because a female, whereas Ian is very curious and uh, I couldn't really get him. So who came first and why did you uh, tell his story that way? Okay. Ian came first. I was interested in the idea of someone with a particular kind of wound that he doesn't deal with properly. This is a wound that comes from his education, the person that he couldn't become. And his response to failure ultimately is catastrophic. Um, Emily is looking in 2002 still She's looking to complete this picture, to find a more solid picture, to find someone to love. And she's doing that because we all want to look at the place we came from and, and it's, it's ideal if we can love that origin. But also she needs to replace this horrific image that she has. And Lucky has certain ideas about like, people keep the truth about Ian from Emily. But just reading the books, I don't want to spoil the ending. No, okay. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Anyone else? Look, I'm just so glad that uh, someone wrote a book about the milk bar culture because I grew up in a milk bar for a few years anyway, back in the late 50s and early 60s, being of uh, Greek origin. So uh, any Greek... Uh, in fact, I would say that every Greek knows someone who owned a milk bar or a cafe at some stage during their uh, working life here in, in Australia. But uh, I'm just wondering as to whether the reason why you wrote the book 
Was it to kind of identify the milk bar culture or was it the fact that you just wanted to write a book with, uh, say, you know, the Greek characters uh, thrown in as well? Um, it was never going to be, like, this whole book is about the Greek, the Greek cafe world. I was interested in worlds that intersected with the Greek cafe world because the distance that I have from the cafes meant that that was sort of my narrating position. There's the media, there's classical scholarship in this book. Um, and those were worlds that I was interested in as well. So I wanted the cafes to be at the center of the book, but not necessarily to be the whole world. Um, what I was concerned about with a book set in a great cafe, at least given my um, abilities as a first-time novelist, was the possible claustrophobia of writing. As you know, there were everyone, the family lived in rooms behind the, the kitchen. Yeah, it seemed interesting in terms of classical compression of time and place, but it's, I felt it would be difficult for me to pull off and I was drawn in other directions as well. Sorry if I haven't answered that question correctly. Can I also ask, does your family identify, well, the Greeks that you know, identify young people who kind of do something wrong as bodgyrus? <laughs> I ask that only because the most of the clientele at my parents' milk bar were bodgies and widgies, if I uh, think <laughs> a few people would uh, remember those. And unfortunately, they scared the locals away from uh, going to my uh, parents' milk bar. So after a few years, my parents went, uh, went broke, and that's only because of the bodgies and widgies that used to uh, go. But I know that my parents and within the Greek uh, community, anyone who does something wrong, is, especially a male, is considered a bodgy, uh, inner bodgies. Like he's a, he's a bad person, a bodgy, so that's kind of sucks. So just wanting, did you actually yeah, use I, that, maybe I, did you use that term in the book? Uh, it, it's not in the book and it's, it's a term I've heard, but it wasn't really used that much um, in our family. <laughs> we do. Oh. Anyone else? Yeah, this lady here. I think as a sales position, you very cleverly used food to engage all Australians, all readers. And I don't use this as a criticism. I think when foreigners came here, foreigners came here, uh, people didn't know what to do with them and didn't know how to relate to them. And they were struggling to earn money. And so we have Lebanese uh, uh, greengrocers and um, Vietnamese restaurants and Italians and there are more Greeks in Melbourne than any other city in the world other than Athens. Why are, haven't we got thousands of Greek restaurants? But we stay together in an enclave, we relate to each other because this is how we spread out into the real world. So I think you very cleverly created an environment about people using all those classical and local uh, experiences of others to inform you, which is important, and you've made it a universal thing by hooking us into food. So now I'm coming to food. Did you marry an Australian or a Greek, and what happens in your kitchen? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I do have a partner, and I do the cooking. <laughs> and what do you cook? <laughs> I cook the dishes my grandmother cooked. I, oh, I cook when, the food when, that I was when am I coming to, to dinner? <laughs> <laughs> Not this weekend. Maybe next week. <laughs> uh, terrific. Um, I'm just going to ask the last question, which is looking to the future. What what next? What next for you in terms of literature of writing? Are you? Do you have anything in the pipeline? Is that a terrible question? <laughs> no. Is it a cruel one? No, the next book will be published by Picador. It will be narrative nonfiction. Oh, you've gone over to the dark side. Yes, <laughs> yeah. going to the dark side for the next book, and hopefully, I'll have the opportunity to write a third book, which will definitely be a novel. Um, and as for the subject matter, well, I don't want to say too much about it, but. It's a book about my father and my half brother, two men who never met in this life, but their stories will be together in this book. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking him for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.